Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of WTOC's Tracking the Vaccine podcast. I'm digital anchor and producer Jake Wallace. The rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine will soon take another big step in Georgia and South Carolina, with both states expanding eligibility soon. More on that in just a moment. As Georgia seeks to get more shots in arms, the state will be launching five more mass vaccination sites in the coming weeks, in addition to the four already in operation. One of those sites will be located right here in Chatham County and operate at a Gulfstream Aerospace facility. The other new sites will be in Waycross, Columbus, Sandersville, and Cartersville. All five will open on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Here's Georgia Governor Brian Kemp on adding more sites. We're announcing today that we're standing up five additional state-operated mass vaccination sites in Chatham, Ware, Washington, Bartow, and Muskogee counties, which will increase our weekly capacity at state sites to 45,000 doses for all nine locations. Again, those sites will be in Savannah, Waycross, Sandersville, Cartersville, and Columbus. All sites will become operational on March the 17th in advance of an additional expansion of vaccine eligibility criteria in the second half of this month. As Dr. Toomey and I covered last week, specific details of that expansion will be announced in the coming days in order for Georgians and providers to plan ahead. As you heard there, Kemp says an additional expansion is anticipated later this month, but first, a new expansion begins Monday, March 8th in Georgia, making eligible all pre-K through 12th grade teachers and school staff, adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their caregivers, and parents with children with complex medical conditions. For many, the expansion to include teachers is a welcome one. The Chatham County School Board put out a statement last week saying they're encouraged by the announcement. The district will hold its first vaccination clinic for its teachers and staff next week. Several other county school districts have already or are making plans. Effingham County says they'll begin vaccinating Friday, March 12th at the Board of Education building and Liberty County is planning to hold a clinic on a Saturday in the near future. The governor says he doesn't have plans to force school systems into face-to-face learning currently, but hopes this expansion will lead those systems not yet meeting in person to take that step. Here again is Governor Kemp. Many, many educators, teachers, and students have been in the classroom here in Georgia for months and months now, so it can be done. Um, I understand those that were, were hesitant to do that without the vaccine. We also know that there's a lot of teachers and educators that said they were, you know, weren't going to take the vaccine. So, you know, we, we, can't, we can't rely on excuses not to do something. Uh, we have the tools to do it. We have the vaccine. We're opening it up for our educators. Uh, so hopefully those that are, that are eligible will, will take advantage of this opportunity and get the vaccine. And hopefully our leaders uh, will move to get our kids back in the classroom. In South Carolina, expansion is happening as well. Also on Monday, March 8th, Governor Henry McMaster and the state's Department of Health and Environmental Control announced South Carolina is moving to Phase 1B, which includes a large population. The expansion makes the following eligible. Anyone 55 years or older, frontline workers with increased occupational risk. The state says this includes teachers and school staff, daycare workers, law enforcement and corrections officers, manufacturing and grocery store workers, and more. 
more. The expansion also includes people ages 16 and up with high-risk medical conditions, including cancer, organ disease, HIV, AIDS, pregnancy, and sickle cell disease, and people with developmental disabilities. We have a full explanation of who is eligible in South Carolina's Phase 1B on our website, WTOC.com. With this expansion, a majority of South Carolinians will be eligible to receive the vaccine. The state has also put out anticipated dates for more expansion. DHEC says they hope to move to Phase 1C in mid-April, which would include all people 45 years and up and more essential workers. Phase 2, which includes all people 16 years and older, could potentially begin in early May. My guest on this week's podcast is here to discuss that South Carolina expansion and look at the state's rollout process as a whole. Dr. Jane Kelly is South Carolina DHEC's assistant state epidemiologist. In our conversation, she explains why the state believes the time is right for expansion, why they believe the demand can be handled, and more. Here's my conversation with South Carolina's assistant state epidemiologist, Dr. Jane Kelly. Well, joined by Dr. Jane Kelly, assistant state epidemiologist for South Carolina's DHEC. And, and Dr. Kelly, this is a, a big week, big couple of weeks for, for South Carolina in terms of vaccine rollout as phase B opens uh, on March 8th. And mm-hmm. that is a wide array of, of folks opening to everyone 55 and older, uh, frontline workers, uh, a large portion of the population. Why was now the right time to um, expand? You know, I think that throughout this pandemic, it has been just learning on our feet. I know this is true for everybody, not just for public health. It's true for the clinicians also trying to figure out which are the best medications and the best approaches for treating patients. And as long as we were in phase 1A, we felt that we could take our time make sure this is evidence-based, that we've really thought through what's the best strategy for who should be in 1B. For example, uh, phase 1A, originally we were directing that vaccine towards workers in healthcare settings and the long-term care facility, residents and staff in nursing homes and assisted living. And that was important because that was the group of people with the highest mortality. We were having outbreaks in nursing homes just like we have throughout the country. And so certainly we wanted to target them and we wanted to make sure we got our healthcare workers vaccinated to help maintain our hospital capacity. When we added people age 70 and above, that's also evidence-based because if you look at mortality statistics in South Carolina, about two thirds of those who have died from COVID-19 were in that age group. And then we additionally added 65 and above for the same reason. I mean, almost 90% of the deaths in South Carolina from COVID-19 are in people 60 years of age or older. What that did though effectively is what then meant we had about 1.3 million people in phase 1A. So we didn't feel the urgency to make final decisions about phase 1B and 1C as long as we're still in the middle of 1A. And the reason I say we didn't want the urgency, we had the opportunity to look at what's going on in other states. How are, how are they rolling out? Because every state has had a different plan. And how are their plans working? For example, I think it is Connecticut that has just a straight across the board age requirement. They, they didn't think through frontline essential workers, et cetera, even though that had been recommended by the, um, uh, the 
a I, I always stumble on ACIP, what ACIP stands for, excuse me, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, ACIP. Their recommendation about 1B was frontline essential workers and some other groups. And then they put people in um, with high risk medical conditions in phase 1C. And there's controversy about doing that. And so we felt we could wait and see how is this working in other states? Uh, is this acceptable to the public? Is this the best approach for reducing mortality? Because at the end of the day, that's the game plan. We're not merely trying to keep the number of transmissions under control. If we had all the vaccine in the world available, we would do it differently. But when you know we've got limited doses of vaccine, we have to do it in steps that get it into the arms of the most vulnerable people. So when we came to the final realization that really, if that's our goal, we have to put people with high risk medical conditions in phase 1B, even though that means phase 1B is large as well. It's to give everybody the opportunity to, who are most vulnerable to get vaccinated. I did want to ask you about that. With phase 1B, nearly 2.7 million South Carolinians will be eligible. That's nearly half the state approximately. Do you think, is South Carolina ready to handle the kind of demand that will come with this expansion? Let me make a comment first about those numbers. I, I mean, I, you know, I know those numbers are estimated and they're estimated with good basis. Um, they're, they're estimated based on census. Uh, they're estimated based on what information we have from the American Community Home Survey. You know, there, there's good reason for, for creating those numbers, but there's overlap in those numbers. Now, just like in phase 1A, one could be 65 and a worker in a healthcare setting, you kind of get counted twice. You, you know, make a list of all the workers in healthcare settings and a list of everybody over age 65. So there's overlap. Well, there's even greater overlap as we start to talk about phase 1B. You know, you could be a frontline worker and have a, a medical condition and be of a certain age. So that estimate, I think, is a rough one that is important that for planning purposes, that it could be as high as that. But honestly, in real life, because of all that overlap, and there are ways to dissect that out, but that would be very challenging and wouldn't really help us. Um, we just wanna make sure that we're prepared for the largest amount of uh, individuals that we might need to vaccinate. But in answer to your question, you know, are we prepared? Preparation is two things. Preparation is having the right people in place and the right vaccination clinics. We've got that. We have more, we have a lot of volunteers, but we also have a lot of enrolled vaccination providers. Those are entities like the large hospital systems, the federally qualified health centers or clinics, FQHCs, uh, pharmacies, both the retail pharmacies, the chain pharmacies, and also all the mom and pop individual pharmacies around the state, individual healthcare providers, certain physicians have said, I wanna make sure I got vaccine for my, my patients and for my clinic, and I wanna just do it right here at, at my practice. So, you know, we have well more than a thousand locations that are eligible for administering vaccine. The other piece though, is the number of doses of vaccine. That's where we, like everyone else in the nation, are limited. We're, we're all looking to get increasing doses of vaccine. We do have some good news on that front. I mean, still vaccine doses are, are limited. We all wish we had access to more vaccines. 
it's coming. It's, it, you know, everyone who wants to be vaccinated will have that opportunity, but it does take some time. And I think in the very beginning, we were very limited and that's a struggle. And then things like mother nature intervening so that there was a, a, you know, a glitch with getting vaccine delivered because of bad weather and some other factors have, have added to the challenge. But the good news now is we have three vaccines available to us. We are in South Carolina starting to get additional doses, higher number of doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, the, the two-shot vaccines. Um, that's slowly starting to increase because nationally they're being able to increase production of those two vaccines. What about the Janssen vaccine, also sometimes called the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Uh, Johnson & Johnson's the big parent company. They make lots of different products. Janssen is is the particular vaccine and pharmaceutical arm of that. That's a one dose vaccine. So that when I say this week, we got 41,100 doses of vaccine, I mean, we can vaccinate 41,100 people and they will be fully vaccinated. With Pfizer and Moderna, you always have to you know, half your numbers. If you have 40,000 doses of Pfizer, that's great, but that's only enough for 20,000 people. Um, the other in interesting additional factor to the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen vaccine is that Merck Pharmaceuticals is going to start producing it as well. Merck had a vaccine that they were trying to produce. It did not go to emergency use authorization. They did not apply because they, they were finding it was not as effective as they had hoped. But they already had the factories built. They already had the manufacturing lines. They were ready to make vaccine and now through an agreement. And I think this may be unique in history. I, I can't think of another example where competitive phar, you know, pharmaceutical companies um, have collaborated to do this. But uh, to their credit, Merck and Janssen are collaborating so that Merck will start producing vaccine. That will double our, literally double our supply of the Janssen vaccine. So when you ask the question, is South Carolina really gonna be able to roll out vaccine to a couple of million people in phase 1B? We have the enrolled vaccinators in place. A lot depends upon vaccine supply. And so certainly you know, there can be glitches and somehow in the supply chain, there are certainly unknowns but I'm cautiously optimistic that, yeah, we've, we've got the people in place. It, will we able, be able to get enough vaccine? It will, I think it will increase each week as we go forward. And DHEC already putting out some approximate dates for, for potential expansions to 1C in April. That would include everyone 45 and older, more essential workers. And then uh, phase two, in, uh, approximately early May, that would include everyone 16 and uh, Dr. Kelly, what has the state learned just through this process from the, the first kind of weeks of vaccine rollout to now? What do you think the state has learned and how has that helped in the process of expansion? I, I think this has been a learning process, just as I mentioned before, for clinical medicine, you know, as new drugs were developed or new approaches. Same thing is true in public health. You start out with what information you have from previous pandemics or you know, previous experience with infectious disease. This is a new infectious disease. 
we didn't know enough about how it was going to spread. No one knew enough about how it was going to spread, what the dynamics of infection are going to be. Remember the early days of should I wear a mask or not? And we just didn't have the data. Now we have solid information, solid data that wearing masks makes a huge difference. The early days, we weren't sure. Is it mostly surfaces that are transmitting? You know, what should I do when I get boxes from the grocery store? Um, and now we know that it is predominantly droplet transmission. So understanding about masks, distancing, washing your hands, all those you know, messages you've heard before, there, there is solid evidence behind those things. The, I think the other things that we have learned is we have had to set up an extensive network of collaboration with partners. And certainly we have had collaboration with partners uh, in many other realms in terms of not just infectious disease, in, in terms of controlling chronic disease, in terms of you know, talking to people about tobacco, hypertension, heart disease, and things like that. But I think we had to accelerate all those partnerships so, you know, moving things as quickly as we have and being able to be collaborative about uh, shifting things. For example, I, I just mentioned that the, the long-term care facility program, we will be wrapping up the Moderna vaccine available to that. Anything that was left over, we, we will shift to being available to the general population in South Carolina. So we've had to learn a lot of flexibility. Normally, in many aspects of public health, you can take your time a little bit more, really think through, okay, let's look at the evidence base. Let's, and you look at um, peer reviewed journal articles. You don't look at preprints. You don't look at information that, that's coming out in real time, but we've had to in, in this pandemic. So I think learning to pivot, learning to, you make a decision in October based on the best information you have in October. And then sometimes you have to change that decision in December. This new information has come in. Here where we are in Savannah, obviously we have a, a large part of our viewing area in South Carolina, a large part here in Georgia. And so here in Georgia, folks are kind of comparing this state to other Southern states, such as South Carolina, in terms of the vaccine rollout. Is it fair to say that population size has played a role in, in South Carolina's roll out a little more than 5 million people in the state? Or is it something that is not fair to compare states by their rollout terms in terms of population size? Yeah, I think it's a problem to compare states. I mean, we certainly looked at other states. So, you know, we were looking, it's appropriate to look at what is being done in other places to look for best practices. And so we tried to learn. My example of, we looked at Connecticut, who's doing it strictly by um, ages. And we thought, well, th there's merit to that approach. And we need to make sure that we pay attention to that in our approach. But I, it is a challenge when people are saying, wait a minute, they're vaccinating, oh, I'm just, going to try and come up with a category. You know, they're vaccinating school teachers in this state, but not in South Carolina. Why not yet? And sometimes the answer is because we decided to go with age as the most important criterion. Certainly, I, you know, I, I empathize with school teachers. I know that it is of great concern about its urgency in getting kids back to in-person school, and yet teachers and staff in schools are, are anxious about returning to school in person without being vaccinated. Um, the, the reality is that for younger teachers, their risk of getting COVID is they may get infected, but that they're more likely, honestly, to have mild 
or moderate disease, not threatening their lives. So in South Carolina, we made some different decisions from other states and in comparison across the board doesn't really quite work out. Wanted to ask you about vaccine hesitancy. It's been a big topic with this, um, with this vaccine, especially, but in recent terms, in recent years. What is South Carolina, what do you feel like the state has done well in terms of trying to address some of that vaccine hesitancy, some of that uh, mistrust? And, and what do you think the state can do better? Vaccine hesitancy has a spectrum, right? There are always some people who are anti-vaxxers. They don't want to be vaccinated for anything, period, end of sentence. And then there are the people who are, have been clamoring for vaccine from the very beginning. But that group in the middle that I say is a spectrum, what we've been doing is trying to listen to what are their questions and address their, those cognitive things, those questions that people have, that's information. But it's not all about information. It's also about emotional issues, fear, anxiety, and past egregious historical events. Let me do the easy part first, and that's information. For example, people have said, how is it possible to make a vaccine in one year's time I, I thought, and have it be safe and effective? Doesn't it take years to make a vaccine? And what we've done to approach that question is to point out that in fact, research, basic science research is the longest step in developing a vaccine. And that basic science research for this virus started in 2003 with SARS-CoV-1, a virus that it, you know, came out of China, 2003, infected about 8,000 people, spread worldwide, uh, killed about 10% of the people it infected, and they started work on a vaccine right then and there in 2003. Work on a vaccine stopped once that virus was contained. It's not as contagious as SARS-CoV-2. But basic science research on the virus as a whole certainly didn't stop. We've got 17 years of basic science research in the United States, as well as many other countries, telling us more about what's the deal with this virus? If it comes back again, what's the best target for making a vaccine? What's its genetic code? Can we do its exact genome sequencing? All that stuff was done in those ensuing years. So that when SARS-CoV-2, which is very closely related to SARS-CoV-1, when it arrived on the scene in January, we already had its genetic sequence. We knew scientists knew exactly where they wanted to make a vaccine and they could proceed from there. So it was possible to make a vaccine in what seems like just a year, but honestly, it was over 18 years. But that's the information side. Some people, once they hear that information, feel like, okay, now I understand. That changes things for me. But for many other people, and especially people of color, African-Americans in the South, but also Hispanic Latinos, American Indians, there is additional vaccine hesitancy because there is mistrust of the system, mistrust of the medical system, the government system, the drug company, pharmaceutical company system, because they have had terrible experiences in the past and they don't wanna be guinea pigs. They are anxious about being experimented on. Some of that can also be addressed with information by pointing out that over 75 million people in the United States have received the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines thus far without any disasters. You know, there have been a few severe allergic reactions, but that can happen with any vaccine. Uh, and that that may allay the concern of, I don't wanna be a guinea pig, I don't wanna go first. 75 million people have gone first. Are you ready to receive vaccine? And I've seen studies, for example, Kaiser, Fa Kaiser Family Foundation 
did a series of surveys back in August and September, and then more recently in, in December, and saw that vaccine hesitancy was reduced, including in African American and Hispanic Latino populations. And I think part of that is because they're watching that vaccine rollout. But there'll always be people who are feeling like, I don't know, I just, I just don't trust what I'm being told. So if they don't trust what, the, what they're hearing, then they're not hearing it from the right people. They've got no reason necessarily to trust me. They don't know me. Sources of information, spokespeople, they're the important ones. So for some communities, that may be your priest or your pastor, people belong in a faith-based community and they have trusted individuals from whom they can receive information. Also organizations, for example, we're working with the NAACP to create a campaign specifically addressing vaccine hesitancy among African-Americans. We're also working with promotoras, those are community health workers who work in the Hispanic Latino community to make sure information isn't just translated into Spanish or, or you know, Latin American, Central American languages, but, but really translated in sense of interpreted what questions do people have and how can we get the information to them that they need? Dr. Kelly, I certainly appreciate the time and the work you guys are doing. I'll let, I'll let you go with this one. What is your message to people as we are approaching one year of, of COVID-19, as we hope we are certainly closer to the end than the beginning? What is your message to folks? Sure. So each of us has to make a risk benefit decision. So, you know, I mean, you make that decision when you get in your car and drive someplace. I mean, you make risk benefit decisions every day. So what are the benefits of getting vaccinated? Well, I don't think that I said it, but I, I will say it now. Pfizer and Moderna vaccine and the Janssen vaccine, they're all highly, highly effective in preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. They're highly effective. So that's the benefit. What's on the risk side? Well, on the risk side are things like, you're going to have some symptoms after you get vaccinated. Most people do, sore arm, feeling tired, achy all over for a day or two. So that's a, that's a risk. Um, there is a risk that you know about three to five in a, out of people out of a million doses given will have an allergic reaction. So that's a risk, but it's treatable. Um, and then what about long-term rare side effects? Well, as I said, we've had 75 million people vaccinated without uh, you know, unusual rare side effects like Guillain-Barre syndrome emerging. So I, you know, certainly nothing in life is 100%. Somewhere, somewhere down the line, somebody is going to have some strange effect. But I would ask when you weigh that risk-benefit ratio that you remember, 500 million people have died in this country. Excuse me, did I misspeak? 500,000, excuse me, 500,000 people have died of COVID-19 as opposed to 75 million have received this vaccine and nobody has died. So each of us has to make our own decision. I'd ask your, your viewers to really think through what's your personal risk of contracting COVID-19? Are you out and about? Do you have a job where you're you know, faced by other people who may be infectious? And if you do get COVID-19, what's your risk of having severe disease? Are you older? Do you have any medical conditions such as obesity, diabetes, heart disease? So I, I would urge people to think hard and look at the, the data. And if you've still got questions, 
And you should, you should always be skeptical. You should always question things. Make sure you find a reputable source to answer your questions. Your neighborhood pharmacist might be able to help if you don't have a healthcare provider. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Certainly appreciate it. Sure enough, thank you. Thanks to Dr. Kelly for taking some time to speak with me. You can learn more about the vaccine rollout expansion in South Carolina at our website, WTOC.com. There you'll also find the vaccine location link, which will help you find where to get a COVID-19 vaccine anywhere in Georgia or South Carolina. We'll have a special episode on Monday, March 8th, when expansions in both states include teachers and school staff. In that episode, I speak with Chatham County Schools Nursing Administrator Lisa Wilson about what the expansion means, as well as how the district and its nurses are preparing to help their teachers get vaccinated. That episode is out Monday, March 8th. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can keep up with the latest news and information on the coronavirus and COVID-19 vaccine every night on The News and all the time at WTOC.com. Until next time, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you again soon.